Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Okay, folks, I'm glad you're with us because this is one for the books. You're plugged into the John Clayton episode. Welcome to it. If I had to categorize John Clayton, I couldn't. He's known as one of the great bassists in all genres. He's a composer, arranger, conductor, producer, an educator, recording and performing artist. And the greatest artists have collaborated with him. A short list would include Paul McCartney, Diana Krall, Gladys Knight, Dee Dee Bridgewater, Charles Aznavour, Rosemary Clooney, Etta James. We're talking about the cream. He co-founded the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra and with his brother, Jeff Clayton, the Clayton Brothers Quintet. So, John Clayton, it's an honor to have you as a guest. How are you, sir? <laughs> oh, I'm feeling great. I'm, I'm thinking you left off. Um, I do windows. That's, that's an important part of my bio there. I just want, want to make sure I got that in. <laughs> but I'm doing great. You know, I'm just like everybody sort of getting through the uh, times here, but I've sort of have gone through a couple of phases. I I don't know about you, but I, I went through the sort of the, the, I call it the chill phase where after my concerts were canceled and I had to come home, I just, I didn't beat myself up. I just thought, okay, just chill, relax, you know, leave it. And then I, I after a couple of weeks of that, I went through what I call a lazy phase where I should have been, doing things i just wasn't doing them and so now i'm i'm hopefully more in the productive stage of things so that's that's what's been going on in my life i have to say that is pretty much the exact same cycle that i'm <laughs> i've been going through <laughs> <laughs> funny isn't that weird yeah so i'm hoping you can take us back a little bit if we could be not a fly on the wall, but something with maybe a little better of ears. If we were hearing any given day in your house when you were growing up, what would we hear? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Uh, it's I just flashed on, <laughs> you know, my youth. I'm the oldest of seven. Wow. And my mom... She's still around, but she's got a great sense of humor. She named all of us with the name with names that begin with the letter J. So it's in our household. It was Johnny, Jeffrey, Janine, Joseph, Jerome, Jennifer, Joy. <laughs> so on any <laughs> given day, you'd hear you'd hear my mom say, J -j 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 uh, J "Boy, put that thing down." <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was kind of. You know, along with that, of course, my mom, she led and directed the, the church choir, so she played piano, so we could hear her practicing her gospel music, and uh, sometimes there would be people from the church would come by and rehearse with her, and so we heard, but the music that we, that we listened to on the radio was always soul R&B music, so I grew up listening to 
you know, little Stevie Wonder and the Temptations and the Four Tops and the Supremes and Gladys Knight and on and on. That that was the kind of music that I grew up listening to. And it was not until junior high school that I heard my first jazz because the high school jazz band, big band, came to our school to do an assembly. So that's the first time I'd ever heard jazz sounds in person live. So yeah, so our house, that was kind of our household. Basically, <laughs> my mom trying to corral us and some music in between. And as you said, jazz sounds, what did you think the first time you heard this music? Okay, so this is jazz. You know, I don't even know if I, that's a good question. I don't know if I realized, I didn't, I don't think I defined it as such. I, I, I imagine they told us it was jazz. But it was the high school big band playing an assembly, playing some jazz tunes, big band jazz tunes. And that was the first time I'd heard an ensemble like that. And I was hoping that, because I just started bass then, taking beginning strings in junior high school. And I thought, I hope I'm good enough once I get to high school to audition for that band and try playing some of that music. And that, that was sort of how it all began for me. So why the bass in particular? <laughs> well, you're asking great questions. So in junior high school, you know, you, you get out of get out of elementary school where, where they tell you what you're going to do. In junior high school, they they give you a, a little ounce of freedom. You actually can choose some classes here, and one of the categories was you know the arts, and I could choose a music class. I could choose choir. I could choose whatever. So in the arts, and I, I, I walked into the band room, you know, enjoying music and uh, looked around and I saw and met, met the band director and, and he said, what would you like to play? And I said, oh, wow. And I looked around. And I saw this big thing hanging on the wall. I said, can I play that? And he said, sure. And he wrote down my name and wrote tuba. <laughs> and then as I was, wa- as I was walking out the doors, I saw these four gorgeous brown things standing in the corner. I said, Ooh, can I play that instead? And I always like to say he crossed off tuba and wrote down my destiny. Um, the great Billy Higgins jazz drummer used to say, you don't choose the instrument. The instrument chooses you. And that was definitely the case with me because I didn't even know how it sounded, but I had to, I had to play it. Fascinating. You were truly destined to be a bassist. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back to the gospel music that you mentioned. What do you think about gospel music? Yeah. You know, I don't even think I think anything about it. I think that it's, it's just a part of my, 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 my blood, my life's blood. I grew up playing it. I've, it's just, it's like breathing. You know, I'm as, comfortable playing or listening to gospel music as uh, as I, anything else that I do in life, eating and and breathing. So, yeah, I I love it. I love it. It's, it's you know, gospel music not only introduced me to a music that I hear in church, but all of the things that are attached to it. You know, sacred music allows you through 
express a certain part of your your spirit of your your religion your belief that other music may not at least not in the same way definitely if it has secular secular lyrics versus sacred lyrics you know but so just to be in church every sunday and feel that spirit coming through all of the parishioners is something that obviously affected me and everybody in the in the church and all of my brothers and sisters the same way not you know two of the seven um, my brother jeff and myself are professional musicians but that music affected all of us so you would say that there is definitely a spiritual aspect to what you do there's a spiritual aspect to music period mm-hmm. i i will often ex- explain to students you know music is sound and there are different kinds of sounds you can clap your hands you can you can uh, stomp your feet jump up and down knock on a door bang on a trash can lid you can you know there's so many sounds around us the difference between those sounds and the sounds that you make as a musician i'll remind them is that when you make a sound with music you attach your soul to that sound that's the difference music is sound but it's not just a sound it's not just banging your hands on the keys of the piano you know you really are you know there's the technical part of it where you're trying to figure out the notes to touch but there's the other part of it which you can't see it's not tangible but you can definitely feel it you and i all of us have been to many many concerts where we feel something coming off the stage it's not just sound we feel that musician's soul being attached to those sounds. Singers can do it perhaps more, one could argue, perhaps more, more obviously, more evidently, because they might be singing a lyric that they really express in a way that shows you, helps you to feel what they're feeling, you know, but, but that's, that's anybody who does music. You can you can express whatever you want to music. Sure, you can choose to detach yourself from the music and just make sounds. That's boring. Nobody wants to do that. Well, what would you say, amongst all those things that I list that you do, from performing, going into the studio to make a recording, composing music, arranging, what are you happiest doing? Uh, that's almost as, almost like asking me, do I love my son, Gerald or daughter, Gina, one more than the other? It's that they're that attached and I'm not trying to, Hmm. you know, evade the answer. I think the biggest challenge for me, again, I don't know, maybe this is another another area of the question, but the biggest challenge for me is balance because I love playing bass so much that when I am playing a lot of bass, it's as if there's a little me on my left shoulder that goes, huh, call yourself a composer, huh? Why aren't you composing? 
And then if I'm in the middle of a writing project, then, you know, that me is on the other shoulder going, huh, call yourself a bass player, huh? How come you're not playing bass? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm constantly trying to find the balance that lets me kind of ride that wave of all of the things that I love doing. And I think that, I think that most artists that I know are like that. Other than the, the, just the enjoyment that people get from hearing music, is there a greater purpose to your work? Uh, a conscious greater purpose sometimes. So for instance, if I write a piece that is to reflect some social political frustration that I'm feeling, then that's the purpose. You know, that that's part of the purpose that that music could serve. Somebody may not pick up on that. They may just connect with it or not connect with it in other ways and then not really get that social political message. And then, so that's the conscious way. There are other times, I think most times when I play and I'm expressing myself and I'm having fun with the music, the people, people will connect with your music in different ways on different levels. And it'll mean different things to them. It'll be the same music, but it may, it could even be music that you're playing that has lyrics to it, that has words to it. And people are going to get different messages from that same set of lyrics, depending on who they are, what their experiences are, what they might be going through at any given moment. There's a wonderful, uh, small example of that. A great jazz singer named Carmen McRae did a song that Alan and Marilyn Bergman wrote. And, and she, there didn't seem to be a melody, but there was music underneath this, this text that Carmen McRae recited. And it was so moving to me. I mean, I fell in love with that thing. And it's, a, it's you know, it talks about a married couple and uh, one of the married couple is reflecting and saying, you know, who said you could go? You know, who gave you permission? You know, we, we agreed that we'd grow old together. How could you do this to me? And I just, I just imagine, you know, at that time in my life, I was seeing so many people getting divorced and separating from their partners. That's where my head went. But of course, and I told Alan Bergman that that is such an amazing piece of music. And just, you know, to imagine that couple sort of divorcing and he said, oh, it's not about divorce. It's about loss. It's about death. You know, so (laughs) there is something that was clear in his mind when he wrote it, when they wrote it, he and his wife, Marilyn. And I, like everybody else, heard this, but my experiences took me to all of that to say, that's what music does. So when I'm expressing myself through this music, it's going to touch people in different ways. And there will be people that it will not even touch that will listen to it and will not find a connection to it. And that's just fine. That's normal. Who would you say the great bass players are 
both from the past and the ones that are still with us, all in all? Woof. How long is your show? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. To me, personally, the, especially the people that have affected my, me and my music, uh, we'd have to start with Ray Brown, great jazz bass player, who, of course, played with Oscar Peterson for so many years and played with people like Louis Armstrong and Frank Sinatra and Count Basie and Duke Ellington and, you know, with Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. And I, it's endless. And he was the first jazz bass player I discovered on recordings. And coincidentally, he happened to, at that time, live in Los Angeles. And coincidentally, he was giving a, a one-semester course at UCLA called Workshop in Jazz Bass. Even though I was 16 years old, it was an extension course. And I, I immediately stopped my newly begun classical lessons so I could save $65 to take that course with Ray Brown. And of course, you know, he went on, he and I went on to become very close. So at the top of the list will be Ray Brown. But Ray Brown is the guy who helped introduce me to names like Charles Mingus, Milt Hinton, Paul Chambers, Israel Crosby, Ron Carter, Eddie Gomez, Scott LaFerro, Richard Davis, on and on and on. I, I just, and also, you know, those are kind of in the jazz world. Many of those people are, are gone, not all of them. But um, and then the bass players that are still with us doing great things, that's also a long list, thank goodness. People like John Patitucci, Christian McBride, my, my little brother, I call him. We actually had a group together with Christian McBride, Ray Brown, and myself that, that uh, Ray Brown called Super Bass. Um, so many other Great uh, Ben Williams is a great young bass player. Joe Sanders, John Hamer, uh, a guy named Christoph Ludi. On it, I just got <laughs> a very long list on both ends of that spectrum, you know, which is so encouraging. Encouraging because I, I love the fact that more and more people are developing their good taste and discovering the bass, and allowing themselves to use it as a tool for expression. I'm curious to know what you think about the bass as a solo instrument. We had a young bass player named Benjamin Ryan Williams who came into our studio and he performed all of these <laughs> solo bass songs and they were incredible. What do you think about the bass just when it's by itself? <laughs> uh, I, I can't say anything negative about that because it's something that I often do. <laughs> so I do love it. And um, uh, the first person I ever heard do an unaccompanied solo where he played on bass, the melody and accompanied himself so that you could also hear the underlying harmonies that went along with that melody was Ray Brown. But other people have done it also beautifully. People like Oscar Pettiford um, in the old days. And Mills Hinton was a, a an important person for that um jimmy blanton also so yeah they they paved the way for my generation and then of course this younger generation that ben williams represents paved the way for us to really explore that 
people like Charlie Hayden would do that. I just went, uh, there's my mind just went to that senior place. Uh, we call it jazz Heimers. Um, <laughs> and, uh, oh gosh, he's an English bass player. He played with Miles Davis. He's, you know, he'll come to me, but he also, this, when I come, when I come on the name, all of your listeners are going, Oh yeah. So-and-so. <laughs> but anyway, uh, when, uh, you know, just so many people have done beautiful things with the bass as a solo instrument. And that's not only pizzicato plucking the strings, but that's also arco playing it with the bow. And I like to do both. I like to do a combination. At the beginning of the show, I listed a lot of the well-known recording artists that you've worked with in the studio and on stage. And I'm curious to know, from that list, who really, really knocked you out when it came to you worked with them and you thought, wow, this is a creative genius. I'm sure there's there's a couple, but who comes to your mind first? Mm. Creative genius. A creative genius. You know, that's a pretty strong phrase. If I were to use that, I'd, I would have to say Paul McCartney. But as much as I admire his endless musicality, I was blown away by his humility. You know, he, he for instance, we would put the arrangements together as a group when we would walk in. I don't know if that, that, that experience, just to back up a little bit, Paul McCartney grew up in a household of jazz. His dad was a big band jazz drummer. So here he is, 70 years old plus, and he, you know, I, I imagine it ran through his mind, you know, if I don't have a chance to do that music, sing those songs, now, when will I ever? So he took those American standards, many of which he'd heard growing up, and decided to do this record. So that was his project. Diana Krall played piano, and she was kind of the music director. And the thing that I was blown over, blown away by with Paul McCartney is he would walk in the studio, and he was so kind, and he'd say to us, as we were trying to figure out treatment for a song, he'd walk to the piano and play something. And he'd say, guys, I, I don't know what you call this, but this is the sound I'm looking for. And I thought, what a, an admirable, open, humble man this is that he, cause you know, I, as you kind of alluded to, I've worked with a lot of people. Seldom have I seen people of that stature with that much accomplished who would also say things like, I don't know what this is called. I don't know what this chord is called. I don't know what the sound is, you know, theoretically, how you refer to this. And I, that, that really struck me that he was the brilliant musician he is. Yet he could, he didn't have any qualms about admitting things that he didn't know. That is really, really something. And that album, Kisses on the Bottom, the Paul McCartney album, 
I happen to love that album a great deal. Oh, great. What What do you think it is about these songs? Is it possible to put it into words? What makes their enduring quality? They've been around for so long, and yet everybody, it seems like everybody who is a singer, whether it's Paul McCartney or it's Bob Dylan or James Taylor, eventually you get around to the Great American Songbook. Uh, I I think that, sure, I can, I, I understand the elements, you know, being being one of millions of musicians on the planet, I can I've I've studied I know how to talk about the theory and the components the elements you know I can talk about it on that level and also I feel the music I love how it sounds I love how it feels I can talk about it and feel it on that level as well but there's something inexplicable about music something magical that draws all of us in. And if you, if one could define what it was that makes a song great, then that's all that everyone would do. (laughs) So if you, if you understand it on a theoretical level and it became a hit song for you or for somebody else, then you go, okay, I've got to do that again. I think most musicians have tried that. It never works. Never works. Because the audience, again, the audience like you, there's something subliminal about this, something intuitive about this music that just feels right, just pushes a button in you at the right time. I mean, for instance, you know, you may or may not know I did the, when I did this, the arrangement for Whitney Houston on the Star Spangled Banner, there's no way that any of us could have predicted that it would have done what it did. I had to set the stage for her to do her thing, but knock on wood, my thoughts, my fantasies about, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we did this. And I, you know, I can imagine Whitney sort of soaring here and taking it down to a much mellower introverted sort of place here. You know, luckily she connected with my musical concept and timing wise, we were going through an unfortunate time. We were going through the Gulf war. Everybody's feelings of nationalism patriotism was really high. So put it all together. <laughs> so if someone were to say, oh, well, you know, if you want to write a successful arrangement of the Star Single Banner, just, you know, follow John Clayton's lead and to kind of do what he did. And, and then you'll, you'll score, you know, just do all that stuff and you'll get a home run. It doesn't work like that. Hmm. <laughs> so if it did, we just all follow that, those, rules and we build the same looking house every time. What was Whitney Houston like to be around? Uh, oddly enough, I only got to be around her one time and it was after we did the Star Spangled Banner. So we did the Star Spangled Banner separately together. 
um, I, uh, I wrote the arrangements for the orchestra and my dear friend, Ricky Minor, who was also her music director at the time, went to the, went to meet the orchestra and rehearse them and record the track in Florida. And then he and I spoke later about things, but, uh, and then Whitney, of course, as I recall, I think she had to do, she had to make some kind of a track for herself. When you're in a stadium like that, the, you really need to have some kind of monitor situation that's close to you because the delay in a stadium that that is that that's that big can be really confusing. So as I understand it, I could be wrong, but I, I think that she had to do a version of it in the studio before the game, but she did sing it live. She sang it live to the track that the orchestra had recorded earlier. And the orchestra was on, on the field faking it, but the track was already pre-recorded. So I didn't get to meet Whitney until afterwards. And we were in the same studio together and Ricky was there and Ricky saw me and said, Hey, good to see you. You know, you've never met Whitney, have you? And I said, actually, no. So then I went to the studio where she was and I said, it's great to finally meet you. We've been working together and we laughed and yeah, it was really, it was a, a touching moment and I really enjoyed it, but I didn't know her beyond that. Hmm. I had an interview one time with Frank Sinatra Jr. And I asked him, who does the best job at singing the classic American songs? And he said, the first person on that list would have to be Diana Krall. And <laughs> you've worked with her and recorded with her. What do you think it is? What What is Diana Krall's greatest talent? Oof. That's also a hard one because it's hard to single out one thing. She's sensitive and soulful. I love that about her singing and her playing. She plays great jazz piano. In fact, when she was 19 years old, she moved to Los Angeles to focus on playing jazz piano and learning jazz trio playing with Jeff Hamilton and myself. She also came here to study with Jimmy Rolls, the great jazz piano player, and uh, Alan Broadbent. So we were kind of her little team, if you will. And we just, she was this kid, this teenager that was in love with the music that we we're all doing. And, um, I actually didn't know that she sang. She, she focused on piano playing with when she was here in the beginning, even then we became good, good friends. She was, she was our babysitter for a while. She would get a gig in the lobby of a, of a local hotel or something like that. And I'd occasionally play with her and, uh, we always were working on repertoire and teaching her about, how to give cues and signals when you're playing piano. And then it was then during that playing, you know, a little concert or little gigs here and there with her that I heard her sing. And it was just sort of, you know, if you will, I hate to phrase it that way, but it was almost like lounge singer. Um, she'd sing fine. It was in tune. It was cool. No problem. But her style was developing. And the style that we recognize now was 
in its infancy when she was here in Los Angeles in the beginning. So her piano playing is really a strong suit for her. Her singing, obviously, a really strong suit. And the way she is able to allow her influences to be absorbed. There are people that I know have influenced her greatly because I know her so well. But if you hear her, you hear Diana Krall. If you analyze her, you can hear the influences. And that would include someone like Ernestine Anderson, a vocalist, jazz vocalist that many people, if you're not in the jazz world, you may not know that name. But you add to that, of course, Frank Sinatra. She talked talked a lot about Frank, listened a lot to Frank Sinatra. Tony Bennett, Rosemary Clooney, a huge influence on her singing and her work. I mean, there's a list, a long list. But likewise with the piano playing. Monty Alexander, uh, my former employer, Oscar Peterson, Ahmed Jamal, on and on. So yeah, Diana Krall's, I, I, I don't know how to sort of boil it down to a single most thing that she really does well. I want to call the attention to the audience, to your website. It's very much a listening experience. It's johnclaytonjazz.com. And if they go over to the Clayton Brothers in particular, I've been listening to some very interesting songs, very good material there. When you work with people that you're related to, is there a kind of commonality? Is it is it more relaxing? What's that like? Hmm. Good question. Yes, there is something there. But when we're playing music, whatever that is, takes a back seat. And really, it's still there. It's, a, it's still an important layer. But it's not as close to the surface. People will hear me play with my son, for instance. And I always hear the same thing. Oh, I can really see the pride on your face when you're playing. And, you know, I won't deny that. I guess something's happening. But I don't think of him as my son when we're playing. He's just another piano player. We're just, we're playing music. We're focused and connecting and expressing together. It's only after we're done that I kind of go, oh, yeah, that's my kid. And it's the same thing with my brother. If I'm playing music with my brother, you know, when we're playing, he's not my brother. He's this musician <laughs> that I'm enjoying playing music with. There will be times that he'll do things that are really familiar to me because it might reflect uh, a couple of bars or a phrase that we used to sing in church every Sunday. You know, that, that, that kind of connection where it's really personal, private to us that only family members would recognize kind of thing. So that's the way it, it kind of works with me. I absolutely admit that there is a connection there, a familial thing that that is different than when I play with other people. But when we're actually making music, the music is the focus. And I don't even, you know, you're in the zone. You don't really... The, the, the person, the people that you're playing with shed their personalities and they become, like you, vehicles for the music. 
I'm hoping you can tell us about the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra. How was that formed? Well, Jeff Hamilton, my dear friend, I met Jeff Hamilton when I uh, went to Indiana University. And he was the country rat and I was the city rat. I came from L.A. and he was from Richmond, Indiana. We're both going to IU. And we discovered each other and we, we played a gig together as students. And at the end of the gig, he said to me, um, can I just talk to you for a while? Uh, you know, so we had a break and he said, I just want to know, you know, you're, you, you've studied with Ray Brown. You've already done a bunch of stuff. You know, you're working with Henry Mancini. How, how do you, how do you get better? How do you get so you can accomplish these things? And I said, I, you know, I was, 20 years old or whatever, 19 years old, I, I said, I, you know, I don't know. I just know that, you know, I look at who you want to play. I said, well, who do you want to play with? I asked him and he said, well, Oscar Peterson, Woody Herman, Ella Fitzgerald. And I, I just looked at him and said, then you will. And I said, so how many Woody Herman records do you have? He said, I think I got about three. I said, you need to have 30. <laughs> How many Oscar Peterson records do you have? Five. I said, you need to have 50. And you got to learn them all and learn every song. Just immerse yourself in that. And, and when you meet them, you know, let them know how much you love their music and it's your dream to play with them. Anyway, that was sort of our beginning. So Jeff Hamilton and I became best friends, still are. We left Indiana University and went on the road with Monty Alexander for two years. Jeff left to go with Woody Herman, and then I went on. I left to go with Count Basie. The years go by. I moved to Holland to be with my then girlfriend, now wife. I played in the symphony orchestra. Blah blah blah. Jeff and I are still in touch. He went on to move to Los Angeles and play with Ray Brown in a group called the LA Four. The whole time we we're in touch, I'm writing more and more as a result of my Basie days, and. I, we just at some point said, what do you think about getting a band together at some point? And I said, yeah, that sounds awesome to me. So when I finally moved to Los Angeles, we, that was the end of 1984, we decided to, to move on this. So Jeff Hamilton and my brother and myself put this band together. My brother had lived in LA the whole time. He's a professional musician here and he, he knew all the right people. He knew the, the ins and outs of these people. He knew them personally very well. So he said, well, if you're going to call this guy, you better call this guy as well. And it was kind of that sort of a deal. So my brother put the band together. I was responsible for the music, for the you know, compositions and arrangements. And Jeff Hamilton handled the finances, which basically meant that for quite a long time, Jeff Hamilton didn't have a hell of a thing to do the whole time. Because <laughs> we weren't making any money at all, uh, but but that's how that's how it all began, and here it is. That was in 1985, and here we are in 2020, and we've been together ever since. In fact, we still have people in the band that were at that first rehearsal because we really don't fire anybody. Our our thing is, you know, if you're in the band, you're in this family, and you either 
you either choose to quit or die. That's how you leave. <laughs> you don't let them leave. <laughs> yeah, they leave if they want to, but uh, we're not going to fire them. <laughs> hmm. Is there any dream project or anything that you really you're really hoping to accomplish, or maybe someone that you really want to collaborate with? Is there anything like that you can tell us about? Uh. Two people that were on my bucket list to play with that I didn't have a chance to play with. They're still alive, but they're they're pretty much semi-retired or semi-retired. One is Sonny, Sonny Rollins, uh, and the other is Ahmed Jamal. And loved their music so much, and had always hoped I'd have a chance to do something with them, but it, it never happened. But you know, that's that's fine too because. I am a, a lucky guy. I'm a blessed guy, and I've I've made and continue to make so much music that I uh, I'm, I'm quite happy. That that's one of the things that I would always dreamed of. I was just listening two days ago to Sonny Rollins' record called uh, "Way Out West" with Sonny Rollins with Ray Brown and Shelly Mann on drums, and Ray Brown's bass playing is phenomenal. Sonny Rollins' sax playing is just to die for and um you know and Jamal I I still play along with his recordings as um just because it's fun and it's also a great way for me to warm up so those are two biggies and other than that I you know I've got other projects that I'm creating and looking forward to you know I, I want to do some the next chapter of something duo with my son I want to do uh, record another Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra record. I um, I'm also looking forward to writing more large pieces. I've been kind of doing a bit of that lately. I really enjoy it. You know, pieces that are more than one movement kind of deal, and that um, often they're usually about thirty or forty minutes in length. Uh, not that I need to write a long piece, but just you know, if I have a, a project like that, there might be something that I really want to develop and um, help evolve. So, yeah, I'm, there are plenty of things. I, I still, I, I like to do um, base tips and kind of make them accessible to people for free, put them on, on my uh, website and that sort of thing. So I want to continue with making some more base tips. I'll hear young base players that are searching and looking for some guidance and I'll, I'll do what I can to help them. So yeah, things there, there are always things for me to do and look forward to. And we have a lot to look forward to in terms of things to listen to and to look out for. What would you say is the best thing about being John Clayton? <laughs> uh, that I get to feel and enjoy and thrive from other people's energy. It's just something I love, you know, that, I, that the fact that I can play music with other people and communicate with them in that way just makes me love life. That I can have a conversation with someone and connect with them and have that kind of exchange is really cool for me that I can 
and I can tell jokes with my friends and just laugh on the same level, you know, that whole, just people give energy and whether that energy is coming through music or a story or whatever, that just, that floats my boat. That makes me come alive. That makes me realize just how special my life is. Well, I can tell you that doing this interview with you, I immediately felt an incredible tranquility. I just felt completely relaxed from mm -hmm. the moment you started to talk. Wow, thank you. All the listeners, they can check out johnclaytonjazz.com. And I always like to close the show. I like to give the microphone to the guest. I like to let them go wherever they want. What would you say to those folks who are tuned in with us? Oh, you know, sometimes I will tell my friends, I'll tell my students that I think that it's really important for us all to follow our hearts. Follow your heart. You can't go wrong if you follow your heart. You know, if you don't follow your heart, you always have regrets. You know, something told me I shouldn't have did, done that. <laughs> but every time you follow your heart, that's, I mean, even in, you know, I tell them even in relationships, you know, you're finally able to date that person that you've always wanted to date and you feel good about it and, and he or she feels good about it. Even if that relationship ends, at the end of the day, you're going to go, well, it had to end, I guess, but God, we had some good times. You know, you, you don't regret following your heart. And that's, that's every step of the way career choice. You know, I, my, I know there are people that can make choices and other people either can't make choices or maybe can make more limited choices. So I think, you know, I, my mom, my mom's a perfect example of somebody who made really great choices, but she had seven kids <laughs> and she was pretty much a single parent. And so, yeah, and I feel like she did what she needed to do in order for us, in order for me to be able to make choices, to follow my heart, you know? So if I don't follow my heart, Shame on me after all that my mom, after all my community did to allow me and help me to be in a position to make those choices. So I think follow your heart would be the big message I'd like to share with everyone. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you being with us and, and for the thought that you put into these answers. It's been a great pleasure. It was my pleasure, Paul. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's an honor. Okay, sir. Well, again, I appreciate it, and have a wonderful, wonderful evening. You too. So great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. 
Outro scanning G things improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.